Well, good morning again, brothers and sisters. We, this morning, we're continuing our series moving through the book of 2 Kings. This morning, we'll be looking at chapter 5, verses 20 through 25. If you're utilizing a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 311. That is on 311. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so let us give careful attention to it. 2 Kings chapter 5, I'm going to start at verse 19 for a specific reason. So here is our text. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has speared this Naaman the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he bought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men and the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged them and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away and they departed. He went in and stood before his master. And Elijah said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it time to accept money and garments, olive orchards, vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Our Heavenly Father, again, we ask that you would superintend this time, illumine our hearts and our minds, cause us to see in this text ourselves so that we might avoid the pitfalls that we see here. And instead, we would glorify you and serve you in a manner that befits you and that would aid us in accomplishing your purposes, all to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, there is no doubt in my mind that in the three realms of ordained government, the family, the civil magistrate, and the church, there are many who start well and mean well, but then the ravages of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life kicks in. And before you know it, you have a father who spends significantly more time at work doing everything else besides taking care of his family. He needs, covets that promotion and reasons to himself that the money that will come with it will invariably mean more money to take care of the family. Now this may very well be the case, but often the reality is the family has all it needs to thrive, both spiritually and physically. But what's really going on here is a drive to satisfy the ever-elusive need for more. 
Going on, you have Christian congressmen, a Christian judge, a president who in their lust for more abandons the blocks of integrity that were foundational to their upbringing, all to obtain more, to achieve the desires of their heart. And then when you have preachers and church leaders who for the almighty dollar will tell people what they want to wear, what they want to hear, when they want to hear it, and how they want to hear it, even if it contradicts the word of God. How is this? How or why, you ask, does this happen? The prophet Jeremiah gives us the first hint or clue. In Jeremiah 17, 9, he wrote, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or without cure. Who can understand it? Commenting on this verse in his book, The Message of Jeremiah, Christopher Wright wrote, the old cliche sums it up well. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And the problem is summed up in three words in verse 9 of Jeremiah 17. Deceitful, beyond cure and beyond understanding, he says. We are sly, we are sick, and we are inscrutable. The sin that is engraved on our hearts with iron and flint makes us deceitful in our thinking, diseased in our attitudes, and darkened in our understanding even of ourselves. Folks, this is the doctrine of total depravity. None of us are as bad as we could be, but all of us have been affected by sin. And so even as new creations who have been rescued from the ultimate penalty of sin, we are still subject to being led astray by the inner workings of our tainted hearts. And it is to that end that Proverbs 4, 23 through 27 tells us, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder, think about the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. That is away from God's word. Turn your foot away from evil. And again, Jesus himself in Luke 12, 21 tells us, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. That's God's word. It's his prescription to us. And as we take a closer look at our text this morning, we'll see that Gehazi did the complete opposite of what the word of God prescribed for him. For us, instead, he did what we're all so prone to do. Brothers and sisters, our passage this morning is also a perfect example of what we recently learned during our sermon series in the book of James in the evening. Speaking specifically here of James 1, 13 through 15, which says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, like Gehazi, like us, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
This morning, I want us to see this very pattern that James outlined under three headings. First, Gehazi's sinful desire. Then secondly, Gehazi's sinful behavior. And then the consequence of Gehazi's sin. First, Gehazi's sinful desire. There couldn't be a clearer example of the fact that Gehazi's behavior in this text was not brought on in any way whatsoever by God. And how did I come to that conclusion, you ask? It was after I looked at verse 19 and was reminded of all the times when Scripture speaks of our fallen predicament or actions and then pivots by saying, but God. Ephesians 2, for example, starts off with, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in once we once walked. Following the course of this world, this is all our actions, following the prince of the power of the ear, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then that passage in Ephesians pivots and it says, but God. And it then goes on to describe God's actions on our behalf, all according to his perfect will. Now to see that pattern in our text, we need to go back before verse 8 of this chapter. That's where we found the king of Israel in great distress, even to the point of tearing his clothes you see, he had received a request via a letter from the king of Syria asking, that he, asking him to heal Naaman, the chief commander of his army. As a result of this, the king of Israel got beside himself because he knew it was not humanly possible. And it must be that the king, in his mind he's thinking, had a scheme or was coming up with a reason to attack him. He said in his mind again, he thought it was not humanly possible. But then you have this, but God moment. Because you see, Elijah then in verse 8, we hear the words, but when Elijah, the man of God, heard, he said, let him come to me. That's the but God moment. God can't do anything. And by the way, this also means that the king of Syria realized that the gods that they worshipped, the false gods that they worshipped, had no true power to deliver, to rescue, to change. They had no such thing, no such hope. And so he turns to this king, and this king turns to God, if you will. And so you see that movement and subsequent to that Naaman is healed not by the laying on of hands or the anointing of his body or any other action directly associated with Elisha but by dipping himself in the Jordan River seven times in accordance with God's word to him once again just as was the case with the poor widow in chapter four it was known that God was the one, it was made known that God was the one that was going to deliver, to perform the miracle, and it would be without the help of anything or anyone. Thus, God was the one that was supposed to get the glory and supposed to, and it was supposed to then be known that God does not require anything when he distills his grace. It is by his grace. It is by his mercy. It was he alone that was able to deliver. And most importantly, it was out of pure grace with any, 
out any demand for payment. This again was unlike the concocted gods of that age that always required some form of payment from their subjects. As God's ambassador, Elisha reinforces the truth by absolutely refusing to accept this payment from Naaman. No, instead, after a short discourse, we hear these words, go in peace, thus concluding the act of God in the life of this man for God's purposes and for God's glory. And here again is where we have another pivot. Now we're pivoting from the fallenness of man to, the, to God's glory and grace back to man. Here you have God's will and desire now has been made known. His actions are clear. And Naaman is sent on his way having learned about God's sovereign power, his unmerited favor, and the fact that his grace is free. But then what happens? In verse 19 we hear, but when Naaman had gone from him a short distance. If you just take out some of those words in the middle, you hear, but Gehazi, not but God, but Gehazi, right? So brothers and sisters, that but, and what followed in verse 29 was the beginning of the end for Gehazi. For you see, it was there that a heart that was turned inward was revealed. Prior to this, we saw a servant who seemed to be faithful in all his ways, who was about the things of God in all his ways. But then reality of who this person was came out. All he was thinking about was himself, his personal gain. His desire is manifesting itself in the form of greed. He saw what Naaman had offered to Elisha. And he was lured and enticed by the fallen desire of his heart. It was a violation, brothers and sisters, of the 10th commandment. Do not covet. This is what happens when you turn away from God. You immediately start going against his word. And so he says in the last part of verse 20, As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Brothers and sisters, desire has given way to sinful behavior, our second heading. Because Naaman has turned away from following God's word and has given in to his own desires like any one of us would, he starts engaging in all kinds of sinful behavior. This is the pattern that takes place when we walk away from God. In verse 20, we see the sin of partiality. Notice how he refers to the man whom God has shown his grace to. He says, this Naaman, the Syrian. Oh, it's like Jonah looking at the Ninevites and being abhorred by the fact that God would distill his grace on the Gentiles. And here he is, this Naaman, the Syrian. The sin of partiality is coming out in from him. From there it gets worse for him saying to himself, as the Lord lives, he breaks the third commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. He's literally baptizing his greed, his covetousness, and sinful intent in God's covenant name. Now, how often, I wonder, do we do that? How often do we do that, I wonder? One writer commenting on this issue of taking the Lord's name in vain wrote, 
There is a larger sense in which people today take the Lord's name in vain. Those who name the name of Christ, who pray in his name, and who take his name as part of their identity, but who deliberately and continually disobey his commands, are taking his name in vain. Ouch, said Dean. We take his name in vain when we misrepresent Christ, either intentionally or through ignorance of the Christian faith, as proclaimed in Scripture, he goes on to say. We take the Lord's name in vain when we say we love him, but do not do what he commands. Brothers and sisters, Gehazi was spiritually AWOL, gone once he opened the Pandora's box of his greedy desire and took the Lord's name in vain. It was all downhill from there. He runs and meets Naaman. He runs to sin to meet Naaman, who I bet was surprised to see him and thus ask, is all well? Is everything okay? And then we hear a wail of a response. Look at verse 22. And he said, all is well. That is a big fat lie. I tell you what, if he better be glad that things aren't literal because it would have been liar, liar, pants on fire, and he would have been walking around with smoke coming from his booty. My master has sent me to say, he says, they have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophet. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of gold. Interpretation in our vernacular. We have two new seminary students that just moved to RTS. And you see, they have this great need. And can you please fulfill it? Now notice he's not saying, give us gold, give me gold, because that's what Naaman was offering initially, a whole bunch of stuff. But he's smart in the sense, he thinks he is, that he's asking for a lot less, so he's not tipping off Naaman. And so he's not seeming, so it doesn't seem that he's greedy. It doesn't seem that he's doing wrong. And he's probably rationalizing away his sin. But he flat out lied on the man of God. Think about that. He misrepresented the man of God. So here he's now violating the ninth commandment, which prohibits us from bearing false witness. You know I'm here reminded of King David and his sin with Bathsheba. Once he committed, that is David, committed his heinous sin, which started with his desire, he too had to concoct concoct what was a, a faulty web of lies. Here he was literally destroying, Gehazi was, the reputation of God's servant and was acting in a way that could have been a hindrance to the message of grace that the God of grace wanted disseminated amongst the Gentiles. Think of how many people Naaman had access to and the testimony he had concerning the God of Israel. You know, as I was reading this, I couldn't help but going back to when I was about nine or 10. And I'm talking about this deceptive web of lies and how it catches up to you. And I'm gonna comment on that some more later. But man, when I was nine or 10, I was a latchkey kid. You know what that means? That means that you, 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 you come home and you have the, house, the keys to the house. But I used to use keys all the time. And my great aunt wouldn't hesitate to spank me 
And, to, and she was a fusser. She'll fuss from the time you walk in the door to the time you go to bed. And so I was deathly scared of my aunt. And so, man, I lost my keys when I came home. She wouldn't come home till 4 o'clock. I lost my keys. And so I came up with this plan. I used to live in a duplex. You know, those adjoining house. And we had the neighbor's kids, and their, their parents were also out. So they were about one, two years younger than me. So I went to them, and I said, listen, my keys, I left my keys in the house. Can I go into your house and push up the roof and walk over into the other side of my house? Now, I didn't think that even if I got away with that, I would still have to report that I lost the keys. See, that's what sin does to your stupid self, okay? So anyhow, I go over there, I tell one lie now to them, and go over because there's a wall adjoining the kitchens, and I try and I go over there like that, right? And then my aunt comes home, and she sees the shavings from the roof on the ground. And she says, what? What happened? And I said, auntie, those people next door tried to break in the house. So now I'm thinking she's going to go against them and, it, and fuss with them and it's going to be done, right? She gets on the phone and calls the police. Did I mention that she was the maintenance supervisor for the police department? And so the, whoever came would know her and probably me. And so they came. And there I am, stuck in my lie. I had already started down that road and couldn't get out of it, right? So they come and I'm telling them, oh yeah, they, they, I heard that they, they, they're lying, lying out my teeth, right? The end result of that, by the way, is that, you know, they probably knew that I was lying really bad, but they didn't want to rock the boat with my aunt or whatever, showing kindness or whatever. And so they left, leaving it at that, filing a police report. But here's what happened now. My aunt and my neighbors became enemies. Move forward to my senior year in high school, and there's this beautiful young lady that I see. And I'm like, whoa, this is the kind of person I would want to date. And I start talking to this young lady, and after a moment realized that she was one of the little ones that was living in that house next to me back then. It was just a mess from beginning to end. Why? Because I flat out lied. So in response to his request, Naaman gave Gehazi two talents and two changes of clothes. He also ordered two of his servants to help him transport the goods. The text tells us that when they arrived at the hill, Gehazi took them from the servant's hand and took them to his house and sent them away. At this point, he thought, just like I did, all was well. It's not a big deal. That amount was nothing to Naaman. Nobody would be missing anything. It's all good, the way we reason away sin. No one is going to find out. All is well. But was it? Gehazi knew that Elisha wasn't omniscient. That is, he wasn't all-knowing. And how did he know that? Remember, it was he, Gehazi, who had told Elisha that the Shunammite woman was without a child, something she dearly wanted. He thought he had surely gotten away with his, his deed, but, but brothers and sisters, understand this. When we start being tempted to walk down the road of deceit, understand this. Our sins will find us out. 
Listen to Psalm 139, 7 to 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. You can't hide in the shadow of darkness and the light about me by night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. In Numbers 32, after the tribe of Reuben and Gad made an oath before the Lord, the Lord through Moses told them that he would give them what he promised them if they fulfill what he called them to. But he concluded by saying this, if you do not, behold, that is if you do not obey me, but instead sin against me, you have sinned against the Lord, the covenant God of the universe. And be sure your sin will find you out. And this is exactly what happened to Gehazi and what we'll see under our final heading, the consequence of Gehazi's sin. Gehazi was lured away from his faithful service to God by a sinful desire. His greed that was not known to us then came out in spades that led to all sorts of sinful behaviors as we've seen Behaviors that still occurs here in the end as we look at the final verses of our text. For now he stands before Elisha. And when Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Guess what? That would have been the perfect time to come clean and to lay upon himself upon the mercies of God. But instead, consistent with the one who has been taken down the slippery slope of disobedience by and through their own lust, he lies. Oh, I've been here all the time. I was watching cable, to which Elijah responds with what is at the heart of this whole narrative. After informing Gehazi that God has revealed his sin to him, he asks Gehazi the question, and I'm pretty sure he was fired up because he was captured by the zeal for God's work. Was it time to accept money and garments, olive, orchards, vineyards, sheep, oxen, male and servants, male servants and female servants? Was it time, Gehazi, for those things? Notice he didn't go into anything else. This is the heart of it. Brothers and sisters, if Elisha was living in our day, that question might have sounded something like this. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. Folks are hurting. Secular humanism is the umbrella that everyone is being led to shelter under. Is this the time, preacher, to be seeking sordid gain? Is this the time tell evangelists to be telling people foolishness like sending their money in and they will then receive a prayer cloth that's been prayed over and anointing so that they can be blessed. Is this the time for that? You Christian in civil government, is this the time to be concerned about gaining and retaining power? Is this the time 
Father, mother, I understand your ambition for more, but is this the time for you not to know what your children are being fed as their academic diet? Is this the time to neglect raising them in the nurture and discipline of the Lord? Is this the time? It was a rhetorical question. No, Gehazi, it was not the time for that. It was a time for the message, as Ralph Davis puts it, that God is a God of grace. You don't bribe, manipulate, or cajole Yahweh like pagans do their gods. Yahweh doesn't forever have his hands out looking for a payoff. Yahweh is simply a God who gives. He is Jehovah Jireh, how a great provider. Gehazi, in his greed, was guilty of destroying that message. And as such a great offense as that merited the consequence that was meted out against him. Verse 27 tells us that the leprosy of Naaman was pronounced upon Gehazi and his descendants forever. And thus he left the presence of Elisha as a leper, a person whose outer appearance now matched the inner recesses of their fallen heart. Brothers and sisters, we should know and always be aware that this will be the fate of anyone who turns aside from the way the Lord, the ways of the Lord, and gives into the fallen desires of their heart. There's a way that seems right unto the man, but the end thereof is destruction. The wages of sin is death. And for those who are saved, you will eternally be saved. But the consequences to the quality of your existence, including the peace that passes, all understanding is as sure as anything that you believe in life is real. By grace alone, through faith alone, for God's glory alone. Those are the words that every Christian who truly understands the predicament they were in before God saved them love to hear. They let us know that that which was impossible for us to accomplish on our own has been gloriously accomplished on our behalf. So please understand, on our own, we cannot merit anything. And please understand that this is not the case. This grace alone, with any other religion on the face of the earth, every other religion asserts that you must do your part if you want to hear the word justify in the presence of God. Now, why am I saying this? Because the scriptures tell us that those of us who are beneficiaries of our Redeemer's finished work go from being Christians, go from being those who were rescued to those who are now standing before God in his presence, redeemed, and have a message as those who are the reconcilers, who have been given a message of reconciliation. This is all we're reminded that all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are, and I'm reading, I'm, I'm sort of taking this directly from 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. Are we then to be about self and ambition, wrongful gain? Ambition can be godly and be good. But can we walk away from the word of God and truly represent God? Can we walk aside and be concerned about the things of, our, of me, myself, and I and not and think that we won't compromise the message of God? We implore you, it says, God forbid first, but let us be concerned about the glory of the Lord, the fame of his name, and the advancement of his kingdom. We implore you, Paul said, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Don't walk away. Don't walk down those paths. Don't stray from the left or the right that God, as God told Joshua in Joshua 1. Meditate on God's word day and night and don't walk away from it. Don't turn like Naaman did from following after the man of God, which was representative of following God and turning aside to his own way. Let's not do that. Let's not be Gehazi. Let's be folks that are in Christ and him crucified so that we might truly be ambassadors who are faithful and thus God can effectively use us to advance his kingdom and his fame of his name. Let's think about these things as Steve Brown would say. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank you so much that you, while we were dead in our sins, rescued us. We confess to you that we, as Gehazi, are prone to go our own way, prone to deceive ourselves into thinking that the things that we are doing are right, good, and just, and proper. But we pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts that will quickly recognize when we are walking astray from your word and that we would readily humble ourselves and turn and seek your face and guide ourselves by your word, by your spirit as we submit to him. Help us, we pray, not so that we would be good bad, or famous or achieve great things, but so that we would advance your kingdom so that we would be servants who would stand as representatives that would be ambassadors who go into a far country doing exactly what we should, and that is to represent your causes, the message that you have, and not anything of our own. Bless us, we pray, with hearts that would be like that. Bless us, we pray, with hands and feet that would glorify you in all the actions that we take. Father, we thank you that we have one another and that we can hold one another accountable, that we can encourage one another, that we can live in Christian love with one another, and all the more as we see the day. We pray, Lord, that you again would cause us to maintain the unity that you've given us, again, for the purpose of representing you in this area that you've placed us for your purposes and for your glory. Bless us now as we head out on our way into the highways and byways in a manner that would cause us to again represent you well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.